when you hear the phrase, he was given a long sentence, what comes to your mind? He was given a long sentence. How many of you, when I say that word, you're thinking about like courtrooms and judges and juries and prisons and jails? How many of you are thinking he was given a long sentence? Okay, you had that come to mind. Uh, maybe a prison. Um, but we could also be using that word sentence to be meaning something totally different. We could be talking not about like a length of time that you're going to spend behind bars, but we could be talking about a string of words that are put together with a subject and a verb and the, the sort of things, right, that uh, you learned about when you were in high school. Remember, like, having, like, man, this triggering PTSD from being back in high school English class. A sentence, a long sentence. What we are confronted with today in Ephesians chapter 1 is a very long sentence. A sentence that in the Greek is 202 words. That's a really long sentence. A sentence that begins in Ephesians 1 and verse 3 and goes all the way to Ephesians 1 verse 14. One sentence in the original language. Now, mercifully, most English translations have broken that up into sort of more bite-sized morsels so we can kind of understand what is going on. But Paul, as he is writing this, is writing in one unbroken sentence, one unbroken chain of praise to God. That is what this sentence is about. Now, my goal today is for you not to have a long prison sentence as we, we work through this. Uh, my desire is that we could make it through this entire sentence with our time today. Here's my thought, because God gave this to us as one sentence, we probably should try to deal with it in one sermon. And this is hard because it is so compact. Like every single word is like a hyperlink to an entire book, right? You know, you're in a Wikipedia article and it says something about World War II and you can click onto that and it brings up something else. Literally every word in the sentence you could do a sermon on. It's incredible. It is, it is like, a, like a, looking over the Grand Canyon with all of the different canyons within the canyon, with all of the formations and the strata. And it's a text that really defies outlining. We are going to have an outline this morning, but I want you to know that the outline we're going to follow is really just for our sanity, for us to have some nails to hang our thoughts on. This is like a waterfall cascading down over various ledges. If you go to Amicalola Falls in Georgia or some other waterfall, often a waterfall is not just like one big, you know, thousand-foot thing, but it cascades down, and there's a few ledges you can discern, but it just flows from one to the next. That's what this paragraph is like. This is one glorious 202-word sentence. It's one breathless celebration of God's sovereign grace. Let's read this text together. Ephesians chapter 1, follow along in beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, I encourage you to have a Bible out and follow along because we're going to confront some hard truths and I want you to see that they come from the Word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. In love, having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted, because he, wherein he has begraced us in the beloved one, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he has abounded toward us, in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, 
according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom we have obtained an inheritance, or even in whom we have become an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, under the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. It's a mouthful. That's a long sentence. But did you catch the refrain that came up over and over again? To the praise of his glory. God has saved us to the praise of his glory. When we look at salvation, when we look at the gospel, the takeaway should be God's glory, his attributes, his majesty, on display to be admired and praised and celebrated. It begins with the words, blessed be God, praised be to God. We get this threefold refrain showing that this is all about praise. The point of Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14, is not necessarily to give us systematic theology. It is to call you and me to praise. Here's the message in a nutshell. God is the sole source of our salvation. And because God is the sole source of our salvation, he is to be the only object of our praise. All right, That's Paul's argument is... Ephesian Christians, let's start off by celebrating what God has done for us. And guess what? Salvation comes only from God. One thing you'll notice in this paragraph is we didn't do a jolly thing to contribute to our salvation. The Father chose us. The Son redeemed us. The Spirit seals us. It's all of grace. We shouldn't look at salvation and say, yeah, but I did this little part here. No, it's all of God. And because it's all of God, because our salvation is solely from Him... God is the only object of our worship. We don't get to worship ourselves in that. We don't get to worship some other idol. And guess what? God is jealous for one thing more than any other, and that is his glory. John read in Ezekiel 36 for us that God redeems, rescues Israel. Why? He says, it's not for your sake I'm doing this. It's for my sake. It's for the fame of my name. God's going to share his glory with no one. And if we chip away at all around the edges of salvation being solely by God's grace, we chip away around what it means for God to be God, to be a God who gets all of the glory. How is your worship? When you gather, we gather today as God's people to worship, or you're on your own in your personal devotions, how is your worship? Is it passionate? Is it joyful? Is it fervent? Is it God-centered? You see, our worship of God will only go as high as our understanding of the gospel. If we have an understanding of the gospel that's really like about me, then my worship will begin to be about me. Right? Does that make sense? If it's about me and the gospel, it's going to be about me and the worship. If it's about me and the worship, we'll make the gospel about me as well. And we've got many, many churches in the United States and evangelical Christianity that have kind of put at the center of the gospel, well, man, and me and my contributions and what I do and my autonomous will. And it should be no surprise then that man is then put at the center of worship. It was about what tastes do I want and what's going to make me feel good and, and what will make people feel happy rather than this is about God's glory and God's fame and what God delights in. 
Anemic theology leads to anemic worship. An anemic gospel will lead to an anemic church. The church today is afflicted with a low view of God. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, began with this. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And our, our view of God in this passage is exalted and majestic. I fear that we often slouch to shallow worship, that we reduce worship to a time slot in the calendar, or we regard worship as a genre of highly produced music that makes people a lot of money, when worship is about me responding to God and saying, blessed be God, blessed be God. Verse 3 sets the stage that the rest of the, the passage sort of walks on and performs on. It begins with that phrase, blessed be God, praised be God. We could even render it that way. Praised be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's using a form called the barakah, which would have been a, a form of worship in the, in the Jewish synagogue, saying, blessed be God, we're going to put all the glory and praise on God. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, something different here. He's immediately out of the gates. He is Trinitarian. This is not just sort of warmed over microwave Jewish synagogue worship. This is this form of the praise that would be used in the synagogue, but it has been, been filled with Christian theology. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the object of our praise. Why? Who has blessed us. Same Greek words. We bless him because he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. In other words, the praise that we offer to God begins with God, blessing us with salvation, which then fuels and leads us to worship. And so the cycle that begins with God and ends with God. If our worship does not begin and end with God, it's not worship. It begins with who he is, him blessing us with salvation, and that then fueling our worship. When, when Paul talks about all spiritual blessings... Every spiritual blessing has been given to us. We lack nothing. Later on in Ephesians, he'll talk about fullness and riches. We, we lack nothing spiritually. Now, they're, they're spiritual blessings. They're mediated by the Spirit of God. Unlike the Old Covenant where the blessings were material, you'll have a good harvest, you'll have lots of kids, these blessings are spiritual. They're, they're, they're on a higher plane, and they're in heavenly places. They're not about earthly, physical. Listen, we often use the word blessing to be like, man, I'm really blessed. Got a big house, nice job, new car in the driveway. We're the most expansive and expensive riches we have and blessings we have are the spiritual ones that are heavenly. Heavenly and not earthly, spiritual and not material. And they're all, here's a key word, if you're underlining your Bible, underline this, in Christ. There's no other place of blessing except the being in Christ. That's where all the spiritual blessings are found. So why should we worship God with this white-hot worship that Paul has here? Why should we worship God with this, this waterfall of cascading truth? We could, we could break this down, like I said, a lot of different ways. But I want to divide it. I, I love the, the formula, the, the Trinitarian formula that's here in the text. Because the Father has chosen us, because the Son has redeemed us, and because the Spirit has sealed us. Our worship as Christians is Trinitarian. I'd say a lot, dare say in many, many churches and churches I've been a part of, the Trinity was a footnote in the doctrinal statement, didn't matter at all, and that we might as well have been Jehovah's Witnesses or Muslims because we didn't think about the Trinity. For Paul, the Trinity suffuses everything he has to say. So God's the sole source of our salvation, therefore he is to be the only object of our praise. It starts with him. The, the, the first reason to praise here is the Father has chosen us. Verse 4, we praise him, Why? 
We could even render it this way, because he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. This one is put first because all the other blessings come from this. We're redeemed because the Father chose us. We're sealed because the Father chose us. In the sentence, grammatically, this is the only verb in the sentence that's not part of like a subordinate clause. It's to say this is sort of at the head, at the beginning. This is the, all the other blessings come from this one. If this one's not true, the others cannot be. So notice six truths about the doctrine of what's called election, God choosing us for himself. First off, he chose us before the foundation of the world, before time began. Guess what? I was not around before the foundation of the world. Uh, and neither were you, which means our actions had literally nothing to do with that choice. It is unconditional. God's not looking at us being like, hey, you meet certain criteria, therefore I choose you. God's not looking down the corridors of time learning stuff. God does not learn stuff. The source and the basis of this choice is in God himself. All the other blessings flow from this. If you're part of God's family, adopted into his family, if you're redeemed, if you have an inheritance, if you're sealed, it all starts here with the heart and the mind of God before we even existed. It says he chose us in him. Here's the second truth about election. He chose us in Christ. Sometimes people treat election like the sort of mechanical cold process where God just poof, and now you're saved and nothing happened. No, God chose us in Christ. We're talking about new covenant blessings that are found only in Jesus. So how does God choose sinners who are unholy, who are rebellious and blind? He does it in Christ. You see, by choosing us in Christ, God is not only determining who he will save, but how he will save. He saves us in Christ, the one who redeems us and forgives us and purchases us. We can't separate these to be like, well, the doctrine of election is this thing that stands on its own, and then people are just sort of automatically saved without anything else happening. He chooses us in Christ, which means that, think of it this way. Election is like God planning as the architect. Plans the building and everyone who's going to be in it and all the parts that will be part of it. But by choosing us in Christ, he's also ordaining how the building will be built. And Jesus is like the contractor who comes along and gets the supplies and builds the building. And then conversion is like the new occupants moving into it. In the analogy, God is the architect and he is the contractor. In this analogy, God is also the realtor and the moving company. It's all of him. To say he chose us in Christ means the plan centers on Jesus. That's the means by which this is carried out. Third truth about election, he chose us to be holy and blameless before him. Verse 4. What did he choose us for? To be holy and without blame before him. Now notice Paul does not say he chose us because we are holy and without blame, that we sort of like work really hard and then God's like, oh good, you met the criteria, boom, you're in. When God looks at humanity, you know what material he has to work with? People, not people who are holy, there's none who is holy, there's none who is righteous, no, not one, but a world of humanity who is unholy, not a world that's blameless, but people who are entirely blame, blameable and guilty before him. And out of a world of people who are guilty and blamable and sinful and wicked and rebellious, God says, I'm going to make you holy and blameless before me. Now, some people will say, this just means God chose us as Christians. We need to live holy lives. I say, amen. Yes, we do need to live holy lives. But notice that, that, that phrase, before him. We're not just talking about growing in personal holiness in our day-to-day -day Christian lives. We're talking about being absolutely holy in God's sight. 
on the day of judgment when we stand before him, God's going to say, I see you as perfectly holy and blameless and perfect and righteous because you have been justified in Christ and his righteousness is on your account. Let me give you a good word for this. Salvation. Salvation. God chose us for salvation in his sight. This language is used in Colossians 1.22 and Ephesians 5.27. Neither of those texts are talking about just, hey, be more holy in your lives. God wants you to be holy in your lives. We're talking about absolute positional holiness in God's sight. Now, the proof that this has happened is you pursue holiness in your daily lives. Paul will build on this argument later on in Ephesians and say, if you're a Christian who has been chosen by God for this kind of positional holiness, the way, the proof of that is going to be the way you live your life. People who say, who say, well, I believe in the doctrine of election, so I'm going to just go live however I want, probably are not saved. People who say, well, I'm holy in Jesus' sight. Let me continue in sin that grace may abound. There's a good chance that grace has not actually abounded in your heart because one of the things that happens when we get saved is we get a new nature and a new heart to pursue after the holiness that God has chosen us for. Verse 5, having predestinated us under the adoption of children, So this idea of predestination and election, what's the difference? Election is about the who. Who has God chosen? Predestination is about the destiny. you got the word destiny in that. This destiny that God has marked out before time. What has he predestinated us to? The adoption of children to be part of his family. Now that little phrase, in love, could go with the truth of verse 4 or the truth of verse 5. You heard when I read it, I put it with verse 5. Because you think about this, adoption is a relational picture. It's a picture of love and delight that one has in another. No one gets themselves sort of adopted into a family. Rather, someone else initiates that. God chose us for adoption, that is to say, a relationship with him, to take people who hated him and says, you're going to be sons. And brought into his family, you know what we should do with this? We should enjoy it. Romans 8 says that, God has sent his spirit into our hearts whereby we cry, Abba, Father. This means there is a relationship we have with God as his sons. That is astounding. He's taken us who were orphans who hated him and given us the full and equal rights of children with seats around his table. If you're a Christian here today, here's what this means. You are loved with God's eternal and invincible love. Because God set that upon you before time began. There's literally nothing that's going to happen in time that changes that, right? If God says, I'm going to, I'm going to adopt you knowing that you would be a spoiled, you know, spoiled two-year-old and a rebellious teenager, using those metaphors, knowing that we would be imperfect and we would, would fail. And so if, if God chose us to be his sons knowing all of that and still loves us, there's literally nothing that you and I can do that will change this reality. We could ask God, like, when do you love me most? We've got this book we read, Timothy, called Little Raccoon's Big Question. Little Raccoon's asking his mom, when do you love me most? And is it when I swim across the river? And, he, and she's saying, no, 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 no. And finally, she says, he asks, when do you love me most? She says, right now, because it is always right now. When does God love me most? Not when I go to church, not when I put money in the offering plate, not when I go do good deeds. When does he love me most? He loves me most right now because with an eternal God, it is always right now. He chose us for adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. Again, this is not just sort of this automatic magic wand kind of thing. He strikes us with lightning, but he does this through Jesus. 
And verse 5 says, according to the good pleasure of his will. Here's a fifth truth about election. He chose us according to his will. Notice it does not say he chose us according to our will. It wasn't that, well, we did some things and then God chose us. No, it's according to his good will. I love that phrase, good pleasure. Sometimes the doctrine of election is presented as God sort of being cold and calculated and arbitrary, and it's all about him hating one group over another group and these sort of things. But the language here is intensely warm. Good pleasure. To say, put it this way, God delights in saving sinners. Lamentation says that God does not afflict from the heart. Ezekiel says that God, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. When God elects his people for salvation, it, it, it comes from this place of delight and of overflowing joy to lavish his grace on people who do not deserve it. The same Savior who wept over the rejection of Jerusalem rejoices over the conversion of one sinner. God gets a joy and a delight in carrying out this election. It's his good pleasure to be saved. So this is how we resolved. Some texts say that God desires all to be saved. He wants this level of desire. When we get texts like this, that God decrees to save only some. You say, why does God choose to save some and not all? Why? And you know what? The Bible does not give us the answer. We recognize God as an omnipotent God could save everyone if that was his will. He could. He's all-powerful. But the question we should be asking is not why does he not save all, but why does he save any? Because we are rebels against him. Not, well, this seems unfair. Of course it's unfair because we don't deserve it. He chose us according to his will. And then the sixth truth that I think is the main one here is he chose us for his own glory. Maybe as you're hearing this, there's sort of anger rising up in your heart to say, this doesn't seem fair for God to do this. The point is that God gets all of the glory and the praise. If he chooses and it's unconditional before time, before I had any say in it, if it's according to his will and not my will, if it's him taking people who are rebels and making them sons, there's none of that that I can take any credit for. He gets all the credit. So then we get verse 6. It's all to the praise of the glory of his grace. God's glory is the display of his divine attributes, and then putting right at the heart of that is his grace and his favor. Saying this is displaying God's unmerited favor. This is not about sort of legal meeting criteria, but God freely, generously giving gifts. And the fact that he gives the gift to some and not to others is the prerogative that he has as being the gift giver. That's how it works with gifts. It's to the praise of his glory. Then we get this little phrase at the end of verse 6. Wherein, speaking, okay, that's connecting to grace. This grace has made us accepted in the beloved. This grace that has chosen us has done something else. It has be graced us. That word that's translated be accepted is literally the word grace that's turned into a verb. We don't really have an English word to say graced us. So by grace, he has graced us in the beloved. Now, who's the beloved? This is the capital B, beloved. We're talking about Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The father loves the son infinitely. And as Christians, we are in a relationship with Jesus. So we are objects of the father's love. Catch this, the same love that he has for his very own son. That's incredible. 
Say, I, I want to be loved, and I don't feel loved, and I have families that don't love me. This text is telling us there's something infinitely better. Is a love that loved you before you were lovable and brought you into a relationship with Jesus and loves you infinitely and eternally. That's love. We should bask in that, and we should celebrate that, and we should say, to the praise of the glory of his grace, it should ignite white-hot worship. But a second reason we should praise God, praise the glory of his grace, is that the Son has redeemed us. Notice there's a logical order, what the Father did in eternity past. The Son now carries out in history, verse 7, in whom, the, the beloved, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he's abounded toward us. Paul says we have redemption through Christ's blood. Now, what's, what he's going to do here in verses 7 and 8 is talk about sort of the present possession, what we have right now, redemption. And then verses 9 and 10, he'll talk about the future dimensions of it. He says, we have redemption through his blood. We go from the past tense, from eternity past, to the present. We have right now, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus, you have redemption. Now, what's redemption? We sing, redeemed how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. The word here means a deliverance by payment, of a ransom. So in Paul's day, you know, a couple of countries or city-states or empires go to war with each other. You take prisoners of war, and then you hold them for ransom. And someone pays money, and you get to go free. The term emphasizes both the payment and the resulting freedom. It says, in Jesus we have, this payment has been paid, and therefore we are free in his sight. We were prisoners but he has paid the price to get us released. We were slaves, and he's paid the price to ransom us. So why, why, why does this have to happen? I thought the text says that the Father chose us, so that should be done, boom, boom. No, no, no. Divine justice demands the payment for sin. It demands that God's very nature demands that sin be paid for. The wages of sin is death. And Christ's death is that payment in our place. It does everything that is necessary to free us and to forgive us. Notice the text says we have redemption through his blood. The redemption is through the blood of Jesus. His death on the cross in our place as our ransom, as our substitute, as the one who takes all of our sin upon us. His blood truly redeems us. Now, it's not to say his blood as sort of fluid, has magical properties that like if Jesus got a cut, like, and then that sort of hit people, they'd poof, be saved. But it's, it's what that blood represents, him laying his life down for us. The sacrificial death in our place, it satisfied God's wrath, it paid sin's penalty, and it washed us clean. Luke 19.10 says that Jesus came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. Mark 10.45 says he came to give his life a ransom for many. 1 Timothy 1 verse 15 says he came to save sinners of whom I am foremost. It's through the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus that we're forgiven completely and eternally. Think of this. If you're a Christian, every sin, every sin past, present, future. The sins that people know about and the sins that people do not know about. The sins that bring intense shame and guilt when you reflect on them. All of them have been paid for by Jesus. Every last one of them. Whether it's the sins that you commit 
by doing something or the sins that you think or the things that you desire that are contrary to God's law, all of it paid for by Jesus. That's why we're here today, folks, is we have been forgiven. If we're here to try to earn God's favor, it's never going to happen. But if Jesus has died for us and was buried and rose again to give us life and forgiveness, we have every reason in the world to come and sing our hearts out and to offer him praise. Now, this redemption is not stingy. We have the forgiveness of sins. That's sort of in uh, defining what redemption entails. Notice the end of verse 7. Look back at the text with me. According to the riches of his grace... According to, in the standard with, in accordance with the wealth that he has. There's a difference between saying from the riches of his grace and according to the riches of his grace. Just imagine for a minute that I'm a billionaire. I'd be like, well, that's a crazy thought. Okay, I'm a billionaire and I have all this money. If I come to meet a need for you from my riches, you're like, man, I got a need. I could give from my riches. I give you $10 from my riches. Like, well, I, I need a new house. $10 is not really helpful. That's different than me giving according to my riches. Okay, a billionaire is going to have an ability to give a whole lot more than someone who is not a billionaire. For God to give his grace according to his riches is not him sort of raiding pennies out of the plundered piggy bank of grace. So say he has infinite riches and the grace that he bestows and lavishes on us is infinite. Grace has been oozing out of this paragraph. Have you noticed it, that we were, at the, his his glory, his grace is being praised in verse 6. It's his grace that has graced us in the beloved. It's his grace that has resulted in redemption. It's his unmerited favor. You could put this synonym in. His generosity. The grace of God is this conveyor belt bringing the benefits of Christ's death into our daily lives. You think, well, Christ's death just sort of saves me from going to hell. No, no, no. It gives us every benefit that we have in the Christian life. It's the power by which we live the Christian life. I'm crucified with Christ. What is the conveyor belt? God's grace, his favor, generously every day. You know why we need the gospel every day is because we sin every day. And the grace of God bringing the benefits of Jesus' life and his death and his burial and his resurrection and his life into our lives. Now, verse 8 goes on to say, wherein he's abounded toward us. And then we get this phrase, in all wisdom and prudence, he's made known unto us the mystery of his will. Now we're moving into God's plan that he has for all of human history. This is a really dense phrase. It's according to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself. Let's put it very simply. God made a plan for before the foundation of the world. Yes, it includes our salvation, but it includes a bunch of other stuff too. Here's the plan, verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both that are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. What does this mean? When Paul wrote Ephesians, he wrote another book as well. He wrote the book of Colossians, probably sent them off about the same time. And Colossians can be an amazing commentary on Ephesians and vice versa. So just flip over to Colossians 1 with me for just a second. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And we get similar language of things in heaven and things in earth in Colossians 1 and verse 20. By the way, Colossians 1, verses 9 to 20, is the only sentence in the Bible that's longer than the one we're looking at today. Uh, Paul was on this, like, writing long sentence spree as he sat under house arrest in Rome when he wrote these letters. Colossians 1, verse 20, says this about Jesus. And having made peace 
through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in heaven or things, or things in earth or things in heaven. So this verse is saying that Jesus, by dying on the cross, is going to reconcile everything, heaven and earth. Ephesians 1 and verse 10 is saying that in the fullness of times, okay, the word dispensation in verse 10 is talking about the administration. When God sort of administers all of history and we get to the end of human history, God's going to bring everything together under the headship of Jesus. He's going to reconcile everything under Jesus. Ephesians 1 calls us the mystery of his will. Hey, nobody would have pried their way into this to know like, oh, we, we know what God's plan is for the future. We've figured it out. People tried to stare at the stars, you know, go like read the horoscope. He's saying God's revealed this to his people. Here's God's plan for history is to gather everything in one under the headship of Jesus. That's the future that God has. One day every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the fullness of times in Ephesians 1 and verse 10 is talking about God's plan for the future. One day Jesus will come back and he will tie off all of the loose ends that exist in the universe. Yeah, he's come. He's defeated sin and death and hell on the cross. But one day he's going to return and cast sin, death, and hell into the lake of fire. One day he's going to come back and establish a kingdom where there's going to be no more suffering, no more death, no more sorrow, no more guilt, no more temptation, no more sin. Everything in heaven and in earth. Now, some folks are taking this, ah, look, everybody gets saved in the end. That, that goes contrary to everything the New Testament says. All right, the whole idea of God has chosen. That means there's some people he has not. The fact that he's redeemed, there's some people he has not. What this means is the creation will one day be reconciled to, to, to God, right? Beginning God makes the heaven and the earth. Man sins, there's a curse. Creation is sort of out of whack. But one day he's going to come back and he's going to renew the creation. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And there's going to be no more of the junk that we deal with now. Here's the point of Ephesians. It's to say God has already begun that work of uniting and reconciling everything to Jesus. Here's how he does it. He takes sinners who are at war with God, and he brings us into a relationship of peace with God. Here's how he does it. He takes sinners, in this scenario, Jews and Gentiles that hate each other's guts, and unites them together in a relationship of peace in the body of Christ. And one day he's going to come back, and he's going to take earth and heaven and unite them. He's going to take creation that's at war with itself and unite it. And the swords are going to be beat into plowshares. It's begun. The idea is that the first fruits of the harvest are in hand. And soon the full harvest will be enjoyed. The appetizer has been served and the main course is already simmering on the stove. The final act is underway and soon the curtain will drop and the play will end. One day the work of redemption begun now on uh, on the cross... And the work of reconciliation launched at the empty tomb will be brought to completion. And Jesus will reign over every enemy, even death. And he'll bring in a kingdom of peace and will restore a sin-cursed creation to himself. This is mind-boggling stuff that like stretches our, our, our imaginations from eternity past to eternity future. That's why he's saying he had to make this known to us. He's revealed this to us in the cross of Jesus. All of God's purposes find their fulfillment and their ground in the cross of Jesus Christ. All roads in the Bible lead to the cross, and all roads lead from the cross. Now, how does this help you and me? Right now, we live in a world that is full of discord and brokenness, 
and suffering. We live in a world that has been invaded by the enemy. A world where we're stalked by sin. A world where we're ambushed by suffering. A world where suffering just seems so random and chaotic and heartbreaking. And this is saying one day that's all going to be changed. Because Christ has redeemed us. And even now we have that redemption. So when you turn on the news and you're like, oh, I'm discouraged, remember one day God's going to bring sum up everything in Jesus under his headship and he's gotten started. You want a reminder that God's going to do this? You know what the reminder is? You know what the tangible, visible reminder is that God is going to do this one day? It's the people sitting in this room. A bunch of hell-deserving sinners that God has reconciled to himself and reconciled to each other. There's no earthly reason why this group of people should be together this morning except for the grace of God. And that's why we need to gather. That's why we need to come to church. And so much the more as you see the day approaching, Paul's going to make this argument in Ephesians 3. The church is displaying the wisdom and the plan of God for the ages. Jew and Gentile, black and white, rich and poor, different ages, worshiping together in one body in Christ. The fact that we have unity in Christ looks forward to the day when there will be unity between earth and heaven and a broken creation will be repaired. Right now, the universe, the notes of the universe are out of tune. All the harmonies are dissonant. But on that day, all things in heaven and in earth will echo with the chorus of praise in the way that God intended. Staggering stuff. We now come to verse 11 where we see this brought down to your life and to my life. Why should you praise God? The Father chose you. The Son has redeemed you, and with it is going to redeem all of creation one day. But finally, we see that the Spirit seals us. What guarantee do I have that this plan will not falter between now and eternity future? I'm really good at messing stuff up. right? I'm really good at messing stuff up. Like I can't even stay with the New Year's resolution to not eat certain things, and it's only like nine days in. How do I know that this is going to make it all the way to eternity future? How do I know that what was begun on the the horizon of eternity past will be carried out to eternity future? It's because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 11. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him, who works all things after the counsel of his own will. The idea here is that we have become God's inheritance. That phrase translated, we have obtained an inheritance, could also be rendered, we have become an inheritance. In the Old Testament, God refers to Israel as my heritage. It's like, you're, you're my inheritance. You're my possession. You're my people. And here, God is taking that same term that ref- referred exclusively to one nation. And he's saying, hey, you Christians, doesn't matter what your background is, you're God's heritage. You belong to him. In whom we have become an inheritance. Why? Because we were predestinated, because God determined this according to the purpose of him. And you say, how do I know God's plan won't sort of falter? That there will be these, you know, how do I know there won't be these unexpected obstacles on the job site that will set construction back? Because he's the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. There are no unforeseen obstacles that God's going to encounter and have to be like, let me come up with a plan to deal with that. He's working everything according to the counsel of his will. All things. Even the red light that you hit on the way to church today that made you come in late, that was part of God's plan. 
and the doctor's appointment you're dreading this week and there might be bad news that comes along. That's part of the plan. And the sin that's committed against you, even that is part of the plan. Now, God's not condoning sin. But sin, even sin, fits into God's plan and does not derail it or delay it or thwart it. So we're going to be God's people. We're going to be God's inheritance. We belong to him. Now, if listen, think about this. If I'm God's inheritance, I, I'm his, the, the label on me says belonging to the God of the universe. Should I not live like I belong to him? 1 Corinthians 6, you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your soul, your spirit, which are God's. You know what the context of that is about? It's about sexual purity. The fact that I am God's inheritance predestined to be his from before the foundation of the world, should call me to live a sexually pure life even in the midst of a pornographic culture. Like we're talking about real practical stuff to say, because I belong to God, my body is not going to be used in a way that dishonors him or his name. Because I belong to God, my time is his. The the money that he has granted me is his. The talents I have are his. It all belongs to him. Because I'm his inheritance. Now, why does he do this? Again, we get the reminder in verse 12 that we should be to the praise of his glory. We're his possession and we are also his praise. Praise here is not just something that we do, but something that we are. The theology of verse 12 suggests that we are the reflection and the reputation of God in the world. Our lives are to be demonstrating to the world look at how valuable and awesome and glorious and kind my God is. It's all to the praise of his glory. And he says, who first trusted in Christ. Now, some will say, well, that's referring to the Jewish believers. And verse 13 is referring to the the Gentile believers. I don't see that. I think what he is saying is we're hoping, that's what the Greek word there is in verse 12, we hope in Christ. Why? Because we don't have all the fullness of glory yet. We're awaiting it. We hope for that. We await it. Now, verse 13 goes along. In whom, again, Jesus, you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed you were sealed. Okay, this is a mouthful. Let me simplify it for you. When you heard and believed the gospel, at that instant you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's the syntax, what's going on here. When you heard the gospel, when you believed the gospel, you were immediately sealed. I said a minute ago that like the, the, the image of a building, God planning it, that's like election. And then building the building, that's like redemption. And then the the realtor and the moving company getting us into it, that's conversion. This is what we have going on here in this verse. The fact that you heard the gospel means there was someone who told you the gospel. And the fact you believed the gospel means that you were persuaded to take an action and to make a decision to trust the gospel. A a passage like today, you're like, man, this has been really heavy on what God does side of things. uh, Because that's what's in the text. But... It also emphasizes our response. You had to hear and you had to believe for all of these things to be true of you. Someone must preach the gospel. Someone must be persuaded in order to be saved. It is essential. This is not just sort of a, well, since God's doing all of it, let's sit at home. When I think it was William Carey wanted to go be a missionary to, uh, to India, the hyper-Calvinist of his day, they said, sit down, young man. If God wants to save the heathen, let him do it himself. Like what a bizarre, unbiblical attitude to have. No, if God wants to save the heathen, let me be part of him saving the heathen. If God is saving people, he wants to use you and me as evangelists to share that good news and to win people to Jesus and for people to voluntarily come to a place of trusting in Christ. 
Verse 13 emphasizes our responsibility to hear and therefore speak and to believe and therefore persuade with the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done. Now, the main point here is that the moment you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. I don't know that the word after should, should, should necessarily be here because it kind of implies that you believed and then maybe somewhere down the road you got the Holy Spirit, like it could be years, and then finally, boom, you get this. The idea here is immediately when you believed, you got the Spirit. And he's here as a seal. Now, what is a seal? We're not talking about a little animal with a beach ball on his nose. We're talking about a seal that would authenticate something as someone else's property. That's what a seal was. So you say, this belongs to me, I'm going to put my seal, kind of my imprint, my, uh, my name on it. Occasionally I, I, I borrow books from people, and there's some people who have these really cool little stamps that they take a page and they sort of crimp it, and it puts like their initials on the front page. So cool. If somebody wants to get me one of those, that would be awesome for all my books. Uh, but to say, this belongs to so-and-so, like don't steal this book. Um, I've still got books out there somewhere. If someone's watching this online, you have one of my books. I want it back. The, the idea here is it belongs to God. And the seal that says you and I belong to God is the Holy Spirit. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Romans 8 says, if anyone has not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Everyone who is a Christian has the Holy Spirit, and everyone who has the Holy Spirit is a Christian. It's the mark of God's ownership upon you. Romans 8 tells us that there's benefits for us. The fact that I have the Holy Spirit convicting me and guiding me and leading me and transforming me proves that I am God's child. If you don't have the Spirit of God and you don't have that experience, according to Romans 8, you don't belong to God. The Holy Spirit is the proof that you are His. A seal also conveys something else. It conveys protection against tampering. Remember when they put Jesus in the tomb and they like seal the tomb. Why do they do that? To make sure like nobody came and opened it. If you get a letter in the mail that's like, from the IRS, here's your refund check, and it's already been opened and there's no refund check. You're like, somebody out there has got my IRS refund check. I want my money that I gave to the government for an interest-free loan. I want it back now. The seal is to say that the contents are secure and safe and will not be tampered with. Beloved, this is what we might call eternal security. We who belong to Jesus are secure forever and cannot be lost. Why? Because the seal is not like a paper envelope. The seal is not a bunch of wax globbed onto a letter. The seal is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God, who is God. Don't think of the Holy Spirit as like, well, he's kind of like this lesser God. We didn't really get the Father, so Spirit's kind of the next best thing. No, he is God. He has all the same shares, all the same attributes as God the Father. All that the Father has, the Son has, and the Spirit has, he is God. You've got God as the seal, as the protector. By the way, put this together with, with John chapter 10, where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, and... I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, neither shall any man pluck them out of my Father's hand. And then we learn here that the Holy Spirit's also keeping us. Like the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, together, all three persons, keeping you secure in Christ. That should give you confidence. Some Christians are so racked by Unfounded doubt. Oh, God really finished what I started. What if I commit the unpardonable sin? Like, what if I don't do my devotions tomorrow? God will come out and get me. Like, this text is saying, you're secure. Like, enjoy the benefits of what God has given to you. 
We talked last week about how Ephesians is about the wealth we have in Christ. This verse is saying, you don't have to worry about the bank being robbed. Some people are like afraid of the bank losing their money, and so they like pull all the money out and like go hide it somewhere. Then they can't remember where they hid it. Like this is saying, you don't have to worry where the riches are going to go. Your security is in Christ, and the Spirit keeps it. And so the riches are there. Quit worrying about them and start enjoying them. Start living like you have the spiritual wealth to your account. Now he's called the Holy Spirit of Promise because this is the promise of the new covenant. John read Ezekiel 36, which says, I'll take that hard heart out of you and I'll put, my, put a heart of flesh in you and I'll give you my spirit. Jeremiah 31 says the new covenant means that God will, will, will change our hearts. What it means to be in the new covenant is we have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within us. The old covenant, there was a physical temple where people would go. Under the new covenant... We are the temple. We are the dwelling place of God as the Spirit indwells each one of us individually and His church corporately. Now, if God has kept the promise to send the Holy Spirit, by the way, Jesus promised that God would give the Holy Spirit, and the book of Acts shows that He has come. If He's kept that promise, it's a pretty good track record to say He'll keep the rest of them, which is where verse 14 goes. The Holy Spirit is also called this, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession. When we bought our house, we had to put in earnest money. It was like 500 bucks to say, yeah, we really are in earnest. We really want to buy this house. We're not just like wasting everybody's time. It's like a, a, a down payment uh, that, that says the rest of the payments will be, will be coming. That's what he's saying. The Holy Spirit is the, the down payment, the pledge that everything God has promised will be carried out. And like a down payment... This goes against the cost of the total principle. In other words, the Holy Spirit is not like, hey, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit as sort of a placeholder, and then the real blessings come. No, he's the first installment of all the blessings we have. We have the first installment, and is it not a wonderful thing? By the way, the, the word earnest, erebon, in, in modern Greeks used for an engagement ring, proof that the, the wedding's going to come. But unlike an engagement ring, the Holy Spirit is part of the glory that is coming. You think as wonderful as it is to have the Holy Spirit, to enjoy God's love, peace, long-suffering, goodness, gentleness, meekness, faith. You see these fruits in your lives. As joyful and a wonderful thing as it is to have the Holy Spirit crying out on our hearts, Abba, Father, and bringing us into God's presence to enjoy fellowship with Him. As wonderful as it is to enjoy the unity of the Spirit among God's people. Paul is saying those are just a foretaste of what is coming. It's like a little glimmer, like what the Holy Spirit is for us as believers. That's just the first installment. What's going to come in eternity will knock your socks off. What's going to come in eternity is much more than we can even begin to fathom above all that we can ask or think. Even the sweetest times of fellowship, even the most transcendent moments in worship. Have you ever been worshiping God and it's like the Spirit of God comes over you and you're just like, yes, I'm redeemed and this is awesome and joy floods your heart. And then, then something comes up and that sort of the feeling goes away. All eternity will be that level kind of joy. Like a level 11 joy for all eternity. The Spirit's the down payment, the guarantee that God will finish what he has started so we're groaning right now. You might stand up and it sounds like, you know, things are falling apart and things are popping and creaking. You're going to the doctor and they're like, stuff's not working properly and pipes that should be flowing are clogged and 
things that you should remember and you're not remembering and things you should be hearing you're not hearing anymore. One day, God will transform this body of humiliation to be made like unto Christ's glorious body. One day, he's going to make all things new. And the proof, the Holy Spirit. One day, this will all be different. One day, we will enter heaven, a heaven that's without sin, a heaven that is without suffering, a heaven that is without death, a heaven that is without temptation. And we long for that. This passage is like, for me, like trying to drink water out of a fire hose. Uh, those who are firefighters can be like, yeah, that thing will knock you over just holding it. Uh, this is the, what God has done for us in Christ. Now, what is it supposed to do? It's supposed to fill our hearts with praise. For us to say, blessed be God, just erupt in praise to God for what he has done. And it could be this morning you found like your prayer life. Your worship, when you come together, is so perfunctory and it's dry. Why not take Ephesians 1 and just meditate on it? Why not throw this passage open and be like, God, I'm just going to pray this back to you, and I'm going to pray this truth into my heart until I really get it. So will you worship the one who has blessed you with all spiritual blessings? Will you worship the one who chose you unconditionally before time? Will you worship the one who redeems you freely in history? Will you worship the one who possesses you as his inheritance? Will you worship the one who has sealed you with his Holy Spirit? Now, if you're here today and you say, none of this is true of me, what must I do to be saved? The answer is very, very simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You might be like, well, am I one of the elect? Here's the way you know if you're one of the elect or not. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Have you heard the gospel? Have you turned from your sin and put your trust in Jesus? The Bible says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And yeah, we'll get to heaven one day and look back and be like, oh, it was all God. But if you're here today and you're like, I want this, cry out to Jesus. Call out to God in faith. God promises that all who believe will have this. And then you can join God's people in the eternal song of praise, saying, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, who has redeemed us to God by his blood out of every kindred and nation and tribe and tongue, and has made us kings and priests, and we shall reign with our God. Father, give us hearts that genuinely appreciate and admire all that you have done for us.